You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. To the Unsung Podcast. The Unsung Podcast! We've got a live audience this week. Yeah. Unsung I'm your host, Mark Fraser. I'm your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm no, joined you're not. by two men who are the masked men and men, many album artworks by Storm Thorsten. Thorsten? You didn't Thorsten. say any of those words properly. <laughs> I did. <laughs> How'd you say his name? Is it Storm Thorsten? Storm Thorgerson. Thorgerson. You, you just said about 20 words in a row and they were all bad. Cool. But not like good bad, like <laughs> cool swearing words that the kids can use afterwards, but just like <laughs> badly use... said. Yeah. I was too busy thinking and not really saying. <laughs> mm. Even that's, the jury's out in that as well, man, let's be honest. I am joined by two men who are the just masked men in many of Storm just... Thorgson's artworks. We're going right back around. You're like Donald Trump. You're like trying to say that word. Are your false teeth slipping, Mark? Is that what the problem is? I'm, I'm getting dementia. Uh, well, uh, I, I am Mark, your host this week, and <laughs> I am joined by two men. Uh, would you care to introduce yourself, men? Uh, to my right is Mr. Chris Cusack, who is the baby on the front of Nevermind. <laughs> Frighteningly, he's it was, it dressed was cold, the same. Right? It was cold water. <laughs> We've all stared at that baby's wang. That's like the main feature, is it not? <laughs> yeah, that's why it sold so many records. Oh, oh that's 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 a dark thought, man. <laughs> and to your left, twenty odd million pedos. <laughs> well, some of them probably needed multiple copies because they got the other ones all messed up. A bit wet. Oh, come on now! <laughs> Literally. <laughs> come on, never mind. Uh, <laughs> come as you are. Yeah. Right. Hey, and that's our series, folks. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs> it's been a right. Hey Chris, who am I? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were about to do an impression. Oh, no. <laughs> All, right. All right, okay. Well, I uh, know oh, it's fine. Uh, uh, well, uh, you're, you're talking to the wrong person. I'm Mark. Oh yeah, that's, that's Chris. And to my right, <laughs> no, you... as David John Weaver. Great, he exists. This is this is why you don't do this, but every week. <laughs> okay, what uh, what record are we doing? What record did you pick? I picked. Ignoto, which is an album by the band, your codename is Milo. Uh, which I believe is a reference to Catch-22, probably, isn't it? No. Is the guy in Catch-22 not called Milo? Maybe not. Uh, 
But yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. You just looked at each other. What the fuck is you he talking, talking about? about? The main guy, you, you're Syrian. Yeah, but is there not a? I'm pretty sure there's something in that. And I haven't read Catch Twenty Two since high school, but I'm sure there's somebody called Milo in it. No, it's about Melianopolis. <laughs> oh, anyway, uh, anyway, Ignoto is Italian for unknown. So oh, that's really like, clever. Yeah, yeah, there you are. Um, but yeah, no, this is an album from 2005. Uh, your codename is Milo. Is a band from the How northeast old were you in of 2005? England. I would have been 18, going on 19. So it was David's birthday last, last Saturday. Week. Last Saturday, yeah. And he's still recovering. I don't go out very often, but when I do, <laughs> I truly go out. And we all went. You way the fuck out. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this was like uh, from that English rock music scene. That yeah. A lot of you mm-hmm. guys. Second know. wave of Brit rock. Yeah. And it was something <laughs> that I don't know much about, I never really got into. I would say it's like the English kind of post hardcore kind of. Boom in the mid the mid two thousands, right? It's so catchy when you say it that way, Mark. No, I'm Mark. I'm I'm Clark. I'm Chris. You're Mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, as far as I'm aware, the first wave of Brit rock was the Feeder, Television, Reef, Three Colors Red, Bush, <laughs> Bush, um, that kind of crew. Yeah, um, late nineties. Uh, some of it was very slow. Some of it was quite fast. <laughs> that's all <laughs> really. That's, that's why you guys tune in. For <laughs> no, but I mean, some of an insight. I, I remember I really liked uh, Three Colors Red when I was like fourteen or something. Some and then I listened to it recently, and it's dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> really, quite bad. I never liked it's not them. Well. It, was, it was a movement also defined by the fact that some of it was quite loud, and some of it was, was like not, quiet not well. quite as loud. Aye, <laughs> but anyway, the, I just feel like a lot of it didn't have much to say Notes. about itself if you want to think and about that era of Brit Rock the song you want to keep in mind I guess is Buck Rogers by Feeder oh that was very loud and very quiet <laughs> you want to keep in mind Oblivion by Terrorvision Wild Hearts. Um, the Wild Hearts. Oh, yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. Earth of the Wild Earth versus Wild Hearts or fuck. EHUQ. Pretty decent. First, first Stereophonics record. Stereophonics, yeah, back when they were the real deal. When they yeah, were Oasis. Before they Oasis. sold out. <laughs> um, then the second wave, is, as far as I can tell, is like that kind of slightly more alternative version, which was like Ruben, Hell is for Heroes, Hundred Reasons, Ocean Size, we're a bit more kind of under the radar. Biffy Clyro, not many, not many people have heard of Biffy Clyro. But I think you'd probably put McCluskey in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah well, million, your code name is Milo Tour, with yeah. McCluskey. Million Dead, million Frank dead. Turner's original band. Uh-huh. Yeah, saw a lot of these bands. What happened to Frank Turner? Nothing. No. Much like Biffy Clyro, they he played Block and then he drifted, fucked off, off into obscurity. One can hope. Frank Turner works uh, at the University Cafe, making chips. <laughs> <laughs> He's a pancake flipper because <laughs> of his name. Oh, actually, a sausage, no, a sausage <laughs> flipper. Yeah, damn it. I, I would edit it, but you don't deserve it. He's, he's um, really, I had this egg, uh, a fine Turner. line. That would have been good, wouldn't it? He's got a fine line on punk rock campsites, I hear. 
campsites. Punk rock campsites. Punk campsites. Rock. Yeah. What are you saying? Campsites. Punk, punk rock campsites. You're not really having a good time with words today. <laughs> you're having a stroke. Did you hear for this? No, tell me more. It, it, it created like a, a sort of camp getaway thing in America where you can go and spend time with them. <laughs> not, not that the ca- listeners can't see me lift my eyebrows, but... <laughs> I'm not talking about a major camp. I'm talking about, like, you know, a, a place that you can't go and camp. Yeah. So that went down really well. Uh, your, your comment or the actual campsite? The, the, well, reaction to the campsite. <laughs> so but our reaction or the public? the general public's reaction to the punk so rock what, are you being nature s- so it was popular punk punk words punk is a really popular artist right so like people were fucking falling over David's themselves David's currently put a kiss on his head because he's fucking losing it here people were people thought this is a real thing that actually this happened this is a misfire like, guys <laughs> I'm enjoying it I'm enjoying this it this is a real thing that actually happened like, I'm not even kidding it's but like, I still can't you've not fully grasped either words so basically or what sarcasm. you can do sarcasm, <laughs> sarcasm. <laughs> sarcasm. <laughs> right? because I don't know if it really did go well or if it didn't go well no the reaction to it went very well I, I was being sarcastic so it didn't go well I don't know if the camp went well it probably <laughs> did go well like, if you don't know anything about it why did you I bring s- it up what, what I'm saying is like because because he, he makes a, a big deal of the fact he's punk rock and he's, he's like comes from like you know proper you know punk rock DIY Stocks. roots yeah mm. um, the fact he was like people were having to pay a hundred of dollars to go and spend time with him at campsite just to be in his presence and sounds like a cult. songs and stuff like that does, doesn't it? it, it sounds, like white do you know what? I, I think the whole experience sounds a bit intense. Oh! <laughs> oh my goodness! I can fucking keep that one. Thanks very much. <laughs> that makes up for Frank Turner, man. It does. How do we get Frank Turner? Oh yeah, he's done that. We're actually right. pretty good. Actually. By the way, by the way, by the way, yeah, uh, the Hells for Heroes Hundred Reasons thing. Also, that band Freeze the Atlantic kind of embody that because that's people from both those bands. Yeah. Reef in that original wave of Reef, British. they were classic yeah. Brit rock. They were like, their cool skateboarding soundtrack talked me into buying my first mini disc player. <laughs> I I'm, fucking miss many. having a mini disc player, man. It's so fucking cool. You're an idiot. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Ignoto, which I didn't know means unknown, which is why that was so good. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so they released their first sort of mini album, uh, All Roads to Fault, in 2004. Which was. Produced by a man I think we have mentioned before in this podcast called Steve Albini. Let's not go into the fucking Nexus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's leave it for a little bit. I think he needs his own Nexus at this point. I, I told you before we yeah. could consider an Albini Nexus, but it's basically just one step away from the Dave Grohl Nexus. It's not. More or less, we yeah. need to go in a different direction. It should be like Mao Zedong or something. <laughs> <laughs> Mao Zedong Nexus. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's about music. Is this going well? I can't tell. Um, it's a fucking shit show. I've I've got a question at this early. St- no, in fact, no. It's too early. Okay. So, no, I've got a question at this early stage. It's not too early, right? So, so this. I feel like I'm drunk. What's going on? <laughs> so 
Uh, All Roads to Fault is their debut EP. Mm-hmm. Okay, seven yeah. tracks, kind of a couple of good tunes. Sounds a bit like McCluskey mixed with Hell is for Heroes. They toured with McCluskey and stuff. They toured with a band called Ikara Cult as well. Yeah, remember that. Didn't mm-hmm. really get a lot of credit, but mm-hmm. they're actually really good. Um and the the title track's pretty good. Uh, it's got a track in it called Four Three, which we'll come back to later on because we've got a track called Five Four, and I'm just like yeah. stop naming your songs after the time signature. The the album that we we're doing, Ignoto, was the debut album that came the year after. Mm-hmm. Right, it was produced by uh, a guy called Mark Ellis, A.K.A. Flood, yes. who we've spoken about in this show before because Mister A.K.A. Flood also worked with Smashing Pumpkins, Depeche Mode, Falls, Sigur Ros, The Killers, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, Nine Ministry, Nails. Gary Newman. Right, so here's my thing. Right, and in interviews, your codename is Milo. Were asked, oh, you know, you guys before you signed to Arab. Polydor, I think it was, mm-hmm. uh, for the first two records, yeah. and then they moved to V2, is that right? Yeah. Um, before you signed to, you know, you didn't really do, like, a lot of shows. What what was the thinking? And they were like, oh, because we didn't want to be one of those bands on the scene playing gigs, you know, it's so trite, whatever. <laughs> How the fuck did a band travel to Chicago to record, I mean, Albini's not expensive, but the journey is expensive. What was going on with your code name is Milo that their first EP was on a major label? Peop- yeah, which most people record in the fucking garbles. Mm-hmm. Their first EP was in Chicago on a major label with a fucking major name producer, and then their debut album was with a world famous producer of like top ten albums, and they they hadn't really toured that much. There's like that little conspiratorial part of me that is just like. How did this happen? Like, where did this come from? It doesn't seem like a particularly organic career trajectory. Am I, am I reading too much into that? I had similar thoughts myself, I've got to be honest. Well, your man Paul Mullen had been in sort of bands before, but they'd just not done a huge amount. They'd yeah. supported like McCluskey and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I couldn't find any big previous uh, projects. Well, who knows? I don't know. I th- I'm, Maybe there is a deep, dark conspiracy to make your code name as Milo the biggest band in the world. Maybe they just caught a lucky break that we don't know about. Maybe they met somebody in a pub who turned out to be on Polydor and said, maybe it was one of those things where a man or a woman went to a gig and said, I'm going to sign that band. You know, who the fuck knows? I'm sure you could, you know, reel off some insane conspiracy theories about how it was all packaged to 26-year-old men with plaid shirts and that we're going to wrap up that market. Is that an invitation? Uh, I, I, can, <laughs> I can try and reel some off if you want. But also, I've got no fucking idea. So they record their, their debut EP with Steve Albini and it was pretty good. But the mystery... And then they recorded it The mystery deepens a little bit because uh-huh. then they followed up their debut album, which we will talk about. They followed up their debut album with a record called, called Print is Dead Volume 1 in the press and in the interviews for uh, their kind of interim period it was almost like a running gag about oh you guys are like so proggy and weird and you're never going to make a dent in the mainstream you're you're too esoteric you're the guys that fly under the radar you're the guys on the periphery of all this music you're never going to be that biffy clyro breakthrough or whatever it's like almost like a running theme that they were somehow the outsiders despite having done an ep with steve albini straight off the bat an album with flood straight off the bat and then for this uh, print is dead volume one 
the people they collaborated with, David, do you care to rattle some of them off? Because some fucking big names in there, man. It's like... Well, Mike- there's Gordon Mokes of Block Party, who was a friend of theirs, I think, because they ended up touring with him. Maximo Parker uh, from that area, right? Yeah, so they're like pals with him on a music perspective. Uh, Get Cape, Wear Cape Fly, who's a nice young man. Uh, Ruben, who I'd imagine they played with. Yeah, Field Music, who's also from that northeast area. Uh, Martin Gretsch, who's like sort of interesting young musician from around that time. The Future Automatic. Heads, they the were, Automatic. And they were so, both from that area, weren't they? Yeah, so... Lethal Bizzle. And then Lethal Bizzle, who, uh, you know, was really interesting grime artist at the time. Yeah, but and, uh, uh, Martin Gretsch and Lethal Bizzle are kind of two that really stand out. Tom Vex in there as well. How does a band that's on the periphery of, like, an alternative rock scene end up hooking up with them for a second album having done it? Like, I just, I just don't really get Like, it seems like started, fucking... Well, it said that they started emailing people that they liked, and that's who they got. It, it's really weird. They'd earned a bit of uh, cultural cachet because their, that album had gone well and been critically well-received, but not sold many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the interviews starts off with a guy making a joke to them about your album was great, you sold 37 copies, but mm. all the people in bands that heard it seem to have liked it. I don't get it. Like, I, I don't I, ha- hate them by any means. I just think there's something really odd about the beginning of this. That, that's that's two years from their first release. I think this was like mid-2000s fucking MySpace doing internet stuff and they had this idea of Print is Dead Volume 1, a collaboration where they were going to do weird alt-rock, post-hardcore indie, but with other things uh, and that's the sort of thing that, like, if you, if, like, a manager just gets an email from a band that's had a fucking four-star or five-star review uh, in the NME, then they'll go, fuck it, it's, I'm going to send my artist up there for half an hour, you know, for half a day. Just that to- doesn't happen. In 2005, it fucking did. It would be like, what's in it for me? Is this band got big exposure? No, it would No, have- I, rem- I remember around the time that Print is Dead coming out and the Lethal Bizzle collaboration was a big one because it was like oh grime is this cool thing and then they're doing this exactly so what was in it for Lethal Bizzle unless because people... I think they thought your code name is Milo we're going to be big that's my point is yeah that... but I don't I don't I don't think from any like weird agenda I just people thought oh they seem like bright guys that are making really cool interesting music and that first record is really well produced and like they just had a bit of a buzz about them. I think and you're affording a very charitable disposition to the kind of music managers that will send their artists. I mean, most music managers won't even let their artist answer a Skype interview, let alone send them up to the north of England to record something that's unrehearsed that they don't know what it's going to sound like. I mean, there has to be some incentivization. I think the the manager of Get Cape, Wear Cape Fly in 2005 would have afforded him a day. You know, it's not like you're sending fucking Madonna. But these people are to touring, Aberdeen. man. These people don't have a lot of free time. That that is the thing. Like, a lo- and a lot of those record, a lot of those people were like friends of the band and that lo- local friends. The ones- so you get those guys on board first, and then you say, "Hey, we're doing this uh, really cool volume one collaboration album. Uh, we've already got you know fucking Maximo Park, uh, Get Cape, Wear Cape, Fly, Ruben, Field Music. We'd really love a sort of you know somebody like Lethal Bizzle to come up." That's an appealing thing, I think. Don't forget, don't Lethal Bizzle did um, the song with Gallows as well. Yeah, yeah, but it was, you could care about Gallows were ramming the academy and stuff like that. You know, it's like it makes a bit more sense that way. Maybe you're right, man. The jokes on them, though, because the album's fucking pish. It's not that good. Yeah, I know. Yeah, um, there's a couple of tracks in it that are kind of like worth listening to. That that song, um, I think the one with Mokes. Wait a minute, the guy from Block Party. That one's pretty decent.
Yeah. The one with Jamie from Ruben is just really fucking heavy. Captain of Lies. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of like surprising. I thought, but they like, didn't count that as a second record anyway. They it was like a sort of stopgap collab album, and then their sort of second album, the studio album, uh, they came from the sun. Came they out came from the sun. Uh, yeah, they had like a sci-fi theme to a lot of their stuff, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they were kind of nerdy guys. I uh, like sort of being outsiders. Even if somehow they weren't, you know, they were part of the, a whole system that Chris has identified that I never saw. I do think I do think it's a valid point, though. Like for a band of like that size to get in a fucking room to flood, I mean, there's something they're fucking know. living the dream. Yeah, yeah got, that doesn't happen easily. I've got a little like uh, weird uh, anecdote about that. So the only time, like, so I, I was in a band who musically I think sounded compatible with your codename is Milo and we were at a gig in Dundee that was actually Hell is for Heroes that we were playing which obviously were part of that scene uh, seriously because we were very kind of of that DIY aesthetic and for the first time cross paths with somebody from the record industry and this guy was up watching Hell is for Heroes and had seen us opening and was like alright yeah so going to get in touch with you and we were like alright fuck it let's see where this goes and we ended up kind of trading phone calls with this guy and it was like I mean, it was a merry dance, and there was no real... We were in behind the scenes, we were kind of having disputes, but half of us didn't really want to entertain it. Half of us were like, oh, let's see what we can get, maybe we can trade it off against something else. You would phone this guy, or he would phone you, and he'd literally say down the phone, uh, oh, yeah, 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 sorry if it's a bit noisy. Uh, I've got the top down, and uh, I'm driving just now, but I've got you on the, the car phone, it's cool. Uh, and he'd like, give you all this fucking shit about how he's in his convertible, he's this fucking like, yuppie record label guy scooting around the outskirts of London. And weirdly enough, he hit us with this thing, that he was like, I think he was working on behalf of like Mercury Vertigo at the time, right? He hit us with this thing that was, we're going to get you down to England... We're going to get you in a studio with so-and-so from your codename is Milo. And I think it was probably Justin, because he's the one that produced our second album. Is that right? And Flood. And we were like, what? Because I love Nine Inch Nails and stuff, so I knew Flood's name. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, we were just a little band kicking about. Now, obviously, it never came to pass, and it probably wasn't even a very serious thing in the first place. But, yeah, maybe there was just a bit of a feeding frenzy around that uh, style at the time. I mean, the the Automatic probably... Sold a fair few records. Yeah, exactly. And I think money got pumped into bands like Hells for Heroes. The thing is, man, there wasn't a lot of money at that point. I mean, the money that was getting pumped was a trickle compared to what it had been. They're all major labels, though. Like, Hells for Heroes, major label. Yeah, but by that point, the the fucking late, it was was like that 2003 to 2005 flip in revenue where it was like 19% drop or something like that. But I think they were were looking across to the States and they were seeing, you know, rock music could still be huge, but how, how are we going to do it? Uh, when was Vex Red? Was that the same time? Vex Red was like 2001, 2002, I think. And yeah, because they won a competition in Kerrang, I think, mm-hmm. to send in their EP to yeah, get recorded yeah, by true, yeah. Ross ba- Robinson. Did your band do that as well? Uh, obviously. <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't get to record Ross I'd Robinson. I fucking so. love to hear you do a Ross Robinson record. Uh, <laughs> uh, that would have been a treat. We didn't need it, a drummer, but. Uh, 100 Reasons were on. They were on a major label for three records. Yeah, hundred reasons, and then that whole sort of Welsh post-hardcore thing kicked off as well. Yeah, yeah that's right. With uh, funeral, funeral for a friend, friend and, and I kind of from I, I, I another band that begins with L. Yeah, and has a member in jail. Yep, 
lost so, reputation. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I had I had a bit of a thing for Hundred Reasons. I, I would I say fucking like, love that band. The first yeah, record is great. Early on, man, they were a fucking great band. I saw them at Caven at QMU as well. But they they actually for anybody that's casually wondering who the fuck are Hundred Reasons. Their best tune is an obscure B-side called Formula One that was in one of their early singles and they put out a lot of half-decent records but fuck me, that B-side is a killer track. But anyway, yeah. Um, there, yeah, there was a there was a bunch of stuff came out just after it as well that you could see your codename as Milo didn't have anything like the commercial impact, but there were certain similarities like the the stuff you're talking about from Wales especially. Like Funeral for a Friend kicked off in a big way. And there was a big there was it not around that time that like Finch and stuff like that came over from the states as well. Yes, Funeral for a Friend were very much on that bandwagon because they were on. They get signed to Atlantic, I think. It was Atlantic? Uh, yeah, maybe not. I've got the record at home. I can't remember. But yeah, yeah, so this this album, that second album came out, they, they came from the sun and then it didn't really do anything and the band went on indefinite hiatus from 2007 then. I think they could have went the Biffy Clyro route. I mean, Biffy Clyro was what, three, fourth record major label, took them three records to get there. Yeah, they were, uh, I think they were, they were pretty steady though, man. They yeah, but the second album is not particularly poppy at all. Vertical Bliss, compared to all the stuff they've no, done. No, I agree, but I think they had a little bit more consistency and success than, mm. you know, we don't get me fucking started in Biffy Clyro. Yeah. That is like because I think they could have went the same route though. Ultimately, if they kept going, but um, maybe not quite as big. But they definitely could have made an impact of sorts. I, I think. think there's an inertia that you need in order to justify it. I think you need to get that initial critical mass. I don't think these guys ever got it. Hi, uh, thanks for uh, listening to our podcast. Sorry to interrupt. I just tried to look to my left and I can't properly because I can't afford good pillows on my bed <laughs> and the NHS don't do back pain. Have you got a crick in your neck? Yeah. Oh man, wait. Did you hear that? I heard that. I heard that. That's brutal, isn't it? Yeah, uh, we're all in pretty bad shape we physically. Can, we, we can add a bigger crack in post anyway. <laughs> 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 And it would be really ideal if you could let us sleep easier by not worrying about having to pay for all our things, uh, like hosting, bits and bobs, batteries and things like that. It doesn't cost much to uh, make this podcast happen, but it does cost a little bit. So anyway. David also tosses and turns in the night, worrying about how we're going to get the word out to more people. So if you feel like tagging somebody in, under an episode or linking... Yeah, if we do a record that you think a friend would enjoy or disagree with us greatly on, then yeah, even uh, better, give them yeah. a tag. But yeah, you can go to uh, unsungpod.net slash donate. Any little helps. Thanks a lot. But there- Paul Mullen, who was the sort of lead songwriter in Your Codename is Milo, or at least Focal Point on stage, uh, he did go on to join The Automatic, did. which was a weird one. He also, he's made a few other bands, including Young Legionnaire. Young Legionnaire are fucking brilliant. Uh, I had 
them on when you guys arrived earlier on and that's that's a band I've listened to with a lot more enthusiasm than I ever listened to your codename is Milo uh, their first record is an album called Crisis Works in 2011 they only did two albums and then an EP called Reconomics Crisis Works got a track called Twin Victory it starts with it's a bit like the Bronx but through a sort of more emo filter it's fucking excellent uh, there's a tune called Black Lions that really recalls your codename is Milo and then there's a tune called These Arms which is I think what your codename is, Milo, we're probably aspiring to in terms of trying to find a combination between commerciality and alternative credentials. And that, that song, These Arms, is a fucking really good distillation of that. Especially Crisis Works, the first album by Young Legionnaire. I think personally, just putting cars on the table is better than anything your codename is Milo did. Some of the other members, does, I don't know what Adam Hiles and Ross Harley did, but uh, Justin Lockie went on to do British Expeditionary Force, who I haven't really heard, but I read a bit about them. Um, and Sean Abbott joined the band called We Are Knuckle Dragger that we actually played with when we were in Newcastle. They were nice guys, uh, energetic. I went on the road with Young Legionnaire one time because they supported Dan and Anarchoid on a little UK tour, and I went with Bronto Skylift, Glasgow's very own. I, yeah, I enjoyed Young Legionnaire, but I just don't think, for me, they just didn't have the depth that your codename is Milo had, particularly on Ignoto. Um, really good live band. They had some really fucking good riffs. Um, the production, Young Legionnaire, is superb. Compared- the production, in terms of clarity and making it all sound loud, thick, it's really thick it's a but for me the production on ignoto is what makes it stand out and a lot of it is because it deliberately sounds muddy you know they do weird things with the panning uh with the frequencies i thought it was my headphones the first time i started listening to it i was like this this sounds like there's something wrong here <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's, so- that's a, <laughs> a rave review right <laughs> off the bat <laughs> so let's if we talk about ignoto now um, well we've not done the nexus oh well we should do the nexus then Okay, well, well, let's 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 roll that back a little. We'll get ourselves excited about Ignoto, but who wants to go first in the next? It's Mark, you go first this well, week. Well, we need to hear the theme tune first. Ah, oh, yeah. fuck the theme tune. <laughs> I'm I'm going to do something extremely sarcastic. Great, cool. <laughs> That was uh, really beautiful and heartfelt. Thanks. Not welcome. Uh, <laughs> who's doing the Nexus first? Mark's I'll go Mark. first. Steve Albini is, is the answer. <laughs> there you go. So, I mean, it's just so much effort that he puts in. I like how he's getting to the point where it's not even a full sentence. Uh, Chris? Aye. Aye, aye, aye. Why not? <laughs> um, so uh, your codename is Milo is our band... 
they released a slightly shitty collaborative album called Print Is Dead Volume 1. Mm-hmm. There was meant to be a second one, never happened. That featured uh, the bassist from the band Block Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, the band Block Party performed on the Jimmy Kimmel show uh-huh. in the United States. Uh, I believe they actually re- released some of the tracks as well. Also appearing on the Jimmy Kimmel show were an American act uh, known as Weezer. Uh-huh. Dave Weezer. On the same night? Not on the same night. Well, that's pretty vague, isn't it? Well, fucking Mark was going to say, oh, they were on the same record label. <laughs> Give me a break, man. Well, okay. So the guys for Block Party spoke to Jimmy Kimmel. And then Jimmy Kimmel also knows the guys for Weezer. How about that then? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Weezer also, the most recent performance in Jimmy Kimmel was doing that cover of Africa by Toto. That, oh, Jesus. Uh, went kind of viral. And then total covered total covered hash pipe. Hash pipe, yeah. Um Weezer for the track, the rather excellent track, Keep Fishing, mm-hmm. that we played at the club night, uh appeared alongside the Muppets. And as part of a recent season of The Muppets, uh, Dave Grohl showed up in one of the episodes. All right. So also on your codename is Milo's uh, collaboration album, Print is Dead. Uh, Track nine, Ordinary Day, featured Lethal Bizzle, Grime Artiste. In 2012, Lethal Bizzle started a successful t-shirt business along with uh, (laughs) footballer Emmanuel Frimpong. Uh, <laughs> he used to play for Arsenal uh, and it fe- featured the can- catchphrase Dench on the t-shirt and that got a bit of uh, viral stuff and a lot of people were saying Dench is a thing what does it mean? Uh, who knows uh, it's totally Dench but there's a video that exists of Lethal Bizzle and Judy Dench together oh. rapping yes Stay Dench is um, she she said Stay Dench whatever that means anyway Judy Dench Obviously appeared as uh, M in the James Bond franchise, including The uh, World Is Not Enough, 1999, featuring um, Pierce Brosnan. The title song, The World Is Not Enough, was performed by Garbage, featuring uh, Mr. Butch Vig, who, of course, recorded a band called Nirvana. There you are. That's true. I went through Lethal Bizzle and Judy Dench. Plays out. Alright, so let's talk about this album. First song, <laughs> I Am Connecting Flight. Salabit. <laughs> <laughs> Opening gambit, shot us fired. <laughs> how like one minute into it they basically play a helmet riff uh, there's a lot of American influences on this record yes. rather than British re- influences uh, it's distinctly British though as a record man yeah it's that's like, it the that's vocal what I think they managed to British. do the, the vocal I, I really like the vocals in this record I think the vocals are just f- 
clear and floaty and melancholy and aggressive at the same time emo throughout yeah but they're not whiny they're not they're pretty whiny I, I have evidence. I think in a, a in a quite self aware way though. I think they're kind of cloy. <sighs> I mean that's down to personal taste. I I just think it works really well with the overall dynamic of the record. His vocals are really nice. They cut through because they deliberately make a lot of the guitar and a lot of the bass on this really fucking sludgy or muddy. It's interesting. I don't. I mean, don't know how much it's got to do with specifically your codename as Milo, but certainly that movement that they were part of. Holy shit! There's a lot of bands that popped up in Scotland in the decade after that really yeah. carried that that style of songwriting. I mean, you could probably rattle them off far quicker than me, man. But they're you really hear parallels in that kind of quite earnestly sung emo stuff mm-hmm. but with the kind of slightly interesting time signatures and the, the hints at post-hardcore as you said about the American influences I think your codename is Milo uh, I don't know whether they listen to it but there's bits of it that remind me a bit of that band Shudder to Think who were quite alternative but also quite singy as opposed to Jesus Lizard who were a bit more abrasive they had a, a little bit more of a pop balance to that which these guys have and they also the gravitas of some of those kind of Helmet sweetened up riffs really reminded me of that band Handsome, the kind of super group made up of people from Quicksand and Cro-Mags uh, and one of the ex-members of Helmet. kind of eponymous album Handsome which is actually a pretty good record albeit a little bit stodgy and a little bit overwrought but even those elements I think are there in the Your Codename is Milo stuff I think they're a little bit stodgy at times and a little bit overwrought at times something that also like Oceanside would be a bit guilty of but that's not to say that they don't have moments that work really really well I just think they didn't have a particularly great ability to, to dial it back I think some of the lyrics for example really really compound that as well we can go through it track by track but I, I agree about the American influences I just think it's so interesting that they were part of a movement that so heavily influenced the stuff that you and I were putting on for so long funnily enough I think like his vocals though are, yeah his accent is British but I think his intonation is more like at the drive-in like Mars Volta like even fucking you know like yeah even more Blood Brothers yeah uh, track that second tune at 17 I think is a much better coming together of those factors I think it's like a it's a kind of stronger song it does hint at, at being a I think pop track rock. one I am connecting flight is, uh, to me it's like it just comes in as tr- it's like f- we're a fast Brit rock band we can do this it's like a sort of raucous call to arms but then yeah 17 by the time it gets to the end it's got those frantic drums but sort of floaty vocals and it builds up and builds up just a very cleverly uh, put together track you know it's an interesting song because we were talking about how did this band get what they got 17 has both maybe the evidence and the answer or sorry maybe asks the question and provides the answer because it's very very melodic and it sounds like it's going to be part of that kind of this could be a single thing Mm -hmm. and then it has these dissonant bridge bits that you're just like well that's fucked the the flow of the song that's what I really like and I like it it. no I, I like that
can imagine the A&R guys tearing their hair out going yeah absolutely guys and that's we, something that I really like out. in this record is I think that he finds really interesting vocal melodies you know that stay with you after a few listens and like, you go back to you find yourself humming but then when you listen to the record it's not <laughs> it's not easy at all the, the album like toys with a little bit and doesn't do what you expect it to do I really like that phrase you go back and you find yourself humming you find yourself humming yeah. it's like, oh, for fuck's sake <laughs> um, no I mean I, 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 can, I can totally get on board with that I just think they cut their own throats in terms of they're on a major and that potential for this to be like oh this is the big push single <laughs> they don't, yeah. which I mean, is great I, yeah fair I, enough I, fair enough but that's it's interesting an interesting yeah. phenomenon I um, just wish they'd been more commercial and written more pop books. That's you, Big Chris. Pop Chris. That is me. That's <laughs> it's like we've gone 180. I know. Let's not talk about that vote. <laughs> <laughs> Titan Grip. Meh. Pretty direct. It's kind of catchy. Yeah, I think it would be really good. I never saw them live. I really wish I'd saw them. I saw them. them live. Did you enjoy them? Saw them at King Touch. They were fine. Uh, like so many of their peers, Hells for Heroes, fine. Couldn't really do it live. Singer kind of burnt himself out after the first few songs yeah. almost every time. Hundred Reasons, pretty good live. Probably the best of the lot. Ribbon were good fun live, actually, because they were dead sort of basic and chunky. But uh, they were okay live, man, I I think track four is interesting because you yeah, see rap, Flood's rap. influence in it. It's yeah. got that more industrial intro and it's generally a more industrial vibe. It's more heavily produced, that one. Yeah, it gets that sort of really sort of claustrophobic feeling down, I think. Uh, it was a single. Yeah, and then Steve. Weird, weird choice for a single. Mm. Steve, at Steve, I think is totally meandering, man. I, I, I just, really like it. I like how it's sort of off kilter, but it's driving at the same time, and then it sort of breaks down. This sort of the, the vocals are quite fragile at the end, and, and yeah. it, it's one. Yeah, I wasn't that, expecting that. Yeah, it's one that kind of confirmed sort of my worst preconceptions about what they were going to do. I have to admit, it didn't do anything to help my enjoyment of the album. I, that's just me. Cool. Team Radar, Team I really Radar fucking love this song. Totally throw away. I really love, fucking love it. It's I think like it just builds, it, then it's quiet, comes back in the nick of time. I think it's just a really fucking satisfying I, track. I thought it was like a really uncharismatic version of Fuck This Band by McCluskey. I think it's just a lot more I think it's better <laughs> <laughs> well you put it uh, like that 5-4 five, 5-4 oh, five fucking 4 I've, I think this, this song then shows just how sort of gentle they can be after Team Radar Time, it's sort of like expansive it's quite urgent and then it, by the end it's got a big fucking post-rock ending it's got a, it's got a really good drift really really nice it's got a really good drift but like I said with that 4-3 thing earlier on what is the deal 
We're naming a song after your time signature. It's just like you're standing there waving your arms going, look at what we're doing. Like, mm-hmm. Well, you know, it was probably, they probably named it in a practice room. Then yeah, exactly. But then name. it's got a full song's worth of lyrics. So what are they singing about? Counting. Yeah. It's just it fucking, I hate it. <laughs> uh, yesterday's head. Blowjobs? <laughs> no, it's a hangover. It's, it's the sound ah. of a hangover. And a regret. Which... The uh, the whole song just sounds like I think it's the most perfectly sounding hangover song ever because it sounds like your brain really hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of pictured somebody looking it's wistfully out a window thinking about a blowjob they got the day course, before. That's just because <laughs> that's what you do every day. kind of feel that the, the album sort of lags there a wee bit man I, I didn't really dig that tune other than that I found the name kind of funny I, I'm, I'm not so sure again a bit like Steve that it helps with the pacing of the album uh, well I think it really does does <laughs> I think the opposite and I think Empty Feet the dynamics are really great you know they cut out frequencies the rhythms are going doing things that you're not expecting I think this band, if they hadn't worked with such a, you know, such an experienced producer at such an early stage in their career, could have just come out with a really straightforward Brit rock album. But I think what they've come out with, and like I can tell that for the two of you, you've only had a few days listening to this album. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, man. I used to listen to them. Yeah, but. I, I, yeah, I left it behind. I didn't. It isn't music. I see. That I lasted. go back to this album all the time because their melodies and the production really makes it stand out because it it doesn't sound like a lot else to me. I mean, I There's think this tune to me felt really predictable and really empty feet. Kinda, yeah, post Nirvana. Oh, we've got a loud intro, then we drop down to like a very quiet verse, and then see, we've think, got a loud chorus and the vocal. I think Two Stone, the next one, is the most sort of throwaway, um, straightforward. Uh, but one. I think. Empty Feet is where the vocals also start to get really overwrought for me and they've got a line in it like it was never meant to be this way and it was just like oh fuck my eyes rolled right back in my head it's just I don't know uh, I thought the verse for Two Stone was actually better than the verse for Empty Feet I thought it was more interesting I like him singing along with the guitar line in that It's a little bit weird and unsettling, but then the chorus just is a complete anticlimax. It just is a total non-event. The chorus in that song, it just—it's like they didn't write one. They were like, "Right, the album's got to be out, so let's just do this." Uh, I, I just didn't get it at all. And the general, I thought, it sounds like a B-side. Oh, the general's an absolute <laughs> beast. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? That I think that's the best track on the album. I think it's the best song on the record as well. All right. <laughs> It's got that fucking driving bass, uh, like chorus, riff, melody, and like sticking it near near the very end of the record as well. I think really rounds it off for me. It's like, oh yeah, we've still got this belter to go. Still got it. <laughs> 
Aye. Um, curiously enough, I actually thought the last song, Edition, was probably the best song on the album. It's actually my favourite, yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Starts off so quiet. It's got a little bit of that kind of... Uh, which is like Afghanistan we were talking about the botch episode that kind of weird creepy very paced mature sort of build up thing yeah. be, it, it, I liked it. it it does get it does get pretty stodgy as well singing about angels man any any, no, but, any song that sings about angels no but the whole point of it is like the lyrics on this define the, the like the record because it's dark and it could veer into cliche but it doesn't take itself too seriously because it's the angels would look down but you're too fucking tall so that's like I think that's a funny line like to do such a serious uh, album finisher but like that's that's a stupid line they're saying it stupidly it's the kind of thing that if Andy Falcus was saying it then he'd deliver it in a way that made it obvious but it's the the croony way that it's delivered is just like uh, the kind of the irony doesn't come across. I don't think. I and think I I get the irony on this album. Like that's obviously what we're missing here. I prefer slapstick. I prefer it if he'd fallen over or he stood in a rake. If he'd, if he'd <laughs> walked in, walked up to sing his line, and somebody'd put a rake next to the microphone and it slapped him in the face, and then there was a custard pie, and maybe somebody pulled his pants down. <laughs> Uh, Mark, what do you think about it? Uh, I thought it was good. I'll probably go back and listen to it again, to be yeah. honest. Um, it's probably a bit too long. Um, I agree with that. Empty Feet, definitely. Nah. I, mean, I uh, think it could probably lose a track, maybe two stone. But The uh, production needs to grow on me a little bit. Did you I say can... it could maybe lose two stone? That's fat shaming. <laughs> <laughs> I think I haven't. Do you think they meant? See, that's the sort of they probably put that out track on. Bad. They were like put this shit track on this album and call it Two Stone, and then somebody in thirteen years will make a joke about it, and that's the sort of subtle irony we are truly about ahead of the time. I think having Flood as a producer on this record was probably a good move in the sense that I think sounds shit. It does sound shit, but I also think... What's the point I, in getting a fucking super famous producer from LA that it sounds shit? It's not just it about that, though. It's like... shit. It deliberately sounds shit. <laughs> no, there's a difference. Like, they make... I think it sounds fucking brilliant. All right, lads, lo- we've flown this guy in from LA. He's no, going to he, make this sound does, so shit. It's going to be amazing. I think he fucking nails the sound of this record because for me, like, I go back to this album all the, all the time because of how it feels. I think it, like, it just... It's a really fucking warm, weirdly impersonal, but like I don't know. I Shit. really like this record. I really like this record. <laughs> it's maybe it's like a postmodern thing you ever said. Yeah, maybe it's like a. It I don't sounds know. brilliantly shit. It's like we brought in this really fucking famous, really famous it, producer. No, it just doesn't sound like anything else. It doesn't sound like a fucking you know super scooped, super clear, super high Good. fucking frequency. You know, the, I, like the way as though it had a multi-million dollar producer on it. It doesn't sound no, like but that. What he's done is he's <laughs> taken things back and stripped it down, and it sounds great. There's also the sense that, like, wait a minute, what is the point of that? Why? Well, why didn't they just record it and because make it somebody, sound shit without Because him? they could have just put it into a local uh, who might have accidentally who made might it have, sound good. But it, I need to be like, you've made their fucking album sound good. That's not what we wanted. We need to get Flood in here to remix this. It doesn't sound. There's a difference between sounding clear and sounding good. This album sounds fucking great because it's muddy because there's weird things happening on you it. You concurred with the word shit. 
Yeah, but shit in a different way. <laughs> like a Michael like Jackson. Not movie. shit in an opinion. <laughs> shit in a like not a sounds like conventional, in the bedroom. Not conventionally beautiful. All right, <laughs> this is not a conventionally beautiful album. This is a. It's overweight. Clearly, we've yeah, this is an overweight <laughs> album with weird hair and a crap nose. But it's all the better for it. I think having flood something like flood was probably instrumental in, in shaping how the cost of it. You're right. Got, got, like, <laughs> There's a lot of ideas in this record which, if, which would probably need quite a lot of, I would imagine, arranging. You never really know if a band on a first record's ever going to nail that or not. So I think Flood probably helped quite a lot with that because he's got quite a good track record of being really good at helping bands like arrange their records in, in really interesting, dynamic ways. I think Flood probably looks back at this record and goes, fuck's sake, I made a bit of a mess of the album. I really hope people don't hear it. And then it sold quite badly, so he was like, thank fuck for that. I, I really like this album. <laughs> It's the one that I go back to from that bunch of records that came out from Britain in the sort of mid-2000s. I listen to this more than I listen to 100 Reasons, more than Hells for Heroes, more than, you know, I do Ocean agree. Size. And I think, I think it's progressive. I think it's got a really identified sound. I think it's got a subtle, ironic humour to it that you might not get, Chris, because you're all totally about slapstick. <laughs> I, c- I, c- I couldn't make it out. It was so brilliantly muffled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I, there's so many bits on this record that I hum. I agree. That I hum. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, just, I just, fuck, and I don't think, it, like, nobody fucking listens to this album. It's like, the top track on Spotify has only got like 31,000 uh, listens. It's you know, really, and that's all flood at him trying to punish himself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, I agree with the other ones because I think what those other bands, the mistake they made was bringing out albums that sounded good. And I think you're quoting Ms. Milo, you better. I think it's it lasts. For me, I go back to Ideas of Station of all the records yeah. from that era. Yeah, it's not close to that. Yeah, but that that Ideas of Station is an album that so many of our peers fucking loved and went back to see you know the the 10 year anniversary one or whatever and everybody everybody you talk to loves 100 reasons and they're like oh i saw 100 reasons of barlands you talk about your code name is milo and there's a very few select people that go that fucking record is amazing and then a lot of people go i don't i don't know including flood including flood (laughs) so i think this is a truly unsung record because i think it's fucking great and uh of that movement uh i believe that it was uh didn't nearly receive the praise or sales that it should have got i think they're a decent band that had some really good ideas but that their music was pretty hammy and that it could have done with better moments of writing i think the album was not particularly well produced despite its fucking amazing production credentials and i think the whole thing fell short of what it should have been i think this album is perfect <laughs> so fuck off well, well it's entrenched it's far out like, I think this is the worst well, fucking thing I've ever heard this is the best album it's, 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 it's ever been recorded the, what about you Mark <laughs> it's fine I'll be in the middle it's fine no I think um, it's just not as good as hundred reasons for me so sorry for talking about that era of music this and Hells for Heroes which I don't even think Hells yeah. for Heroes didn't really have a good album I don't even think Neon Handshake I think the Neon Handshake's ne- half a good album Neon Handshake f- had some really good tracks on yeah, it it's yeah it's half a good record easily the rest of it it's just clearly but I don't up. think Hells for Heroes yeah. were nearly as good a band in terms of they were real underachievers I think they showed a lot of promise and then just fucked it they had some yeah. really good riffs whereas this is a really good album yeah well the public can decide for us yeah as they always do Great. If your code name is Milo, should go into discography. Please let your vote your vote be known. 
go onto our Facebook and also maybe tag any other people that you think might want to do a vote or listen to the episode. If you know anybody in the band, tag them too. What are we listening to next week? Uh, I'm going to take a wee swing out of left field next week. I want this to do... Uh, LaRue's second album. Pat <laughs> <laughs> uh, Benatar. Let's not talk about that. Um, no, I, I'd like to do the album Who Kill by Tune Yards. Oh, okay. Yeah, fine. Cool. I can talk about that. Great. Didn't see that one coming, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> In your face, listeners. All right, thanks, bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. bye.